The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the, uh, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, uh, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling? I should tell you that Chen is taking subscriptions now. He will be doing so up through about the middle of the month on a first-come, first-served basis. People who have signed up and put their name on the waiting list are uh, eligible up to the point in which the quota is filled. So if you have an interest, uh, it might not be too late to put your name on that list for this quarter. Then we'll take a, we'll do it again the next quarter. Uh, this is a quarterly uh, process. So every quarter um, we uh, take on new subscribers to take the place of those who have dropped off. Uh, but we do not take subscriptions uh, on an ongoing basis for Chen Lin. However, uh, you can, oh, I should say that to put your name on the waiting list, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. There is no waiting list for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, you can sign up for that also by going to miningstocks.com. Uh, the best place to go to uh, for for that, for everything I do, including my newsletters, to listen to this show and a host of other things that I do is jtaylormedia, J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com, and you can follow me on Twitter as well. Well, today is a beautiful day here in New York City. It's about 70 degrees. The sun is out bright. It's a, a very much a spring-like day, which is fitting because this is the first day of our spring season on turning hard times into good times. And with a new uh, season comes some new sponsors, and I'm very proud of each and every one of my sponsors. In fact, every one of them are also uh, recommendations in my newsletter. Uh, long before they became sponsors, they were recommendations in my newsletter. We have three producers, two gold and one uranium producer. Timmons Gold Corp, uh, TGD on the New York Stock Exchange, selling at $2.94 today, 144 million shares, $423 million market cap. They have the San Francisco mine in Mexico. Uh, they just, repro- uh, they just reported profits of 60 million, $60.6 million, 25 cents a share for the year ending. Uh, the cash flows from operations, $46 million. The company increased its earnings per share uh, this year, and I expect it uh, has the potential to do so even with current gold prices, without higher gold prices going forward, because uh, it has excellent potential to grow its resource and grow its production into the near future. I should mention that each of these sponsors, I will be talking to the CEOs of each of these companies. Bruce Braganola will be coming on this show uh, from Timmins in the not-too-distant future. Sand Gold, SGR in Toronto, SGRCF is a symbol in the United States. It's selling at 26.5 cents. It has a market cap of about $89 million. 
Well, I must admit that Sandgold has been a disappointment for me in my newsletter. I recommended a sale of this stock at ninety cents in two dollars uh, in two thousand and twelve. It had been as high as four dollars in the past, and a couple a couple of years back. Uh, but with the stock at around sixty cents or so, I, I, as I say, I sold it at ninety cents in my newsletter. Took a loss, uh, but with the stock at around sixty cents, some analysts pulled the plug on this company, and it and it fell all the way to thirty cents. Uh, on very heavy volume, and I sort of look at that as a capitulation point for Sandgold, and I started taking another very good look at this company after it fell on heavy volume down to those levels. Having visited this mine a few years back, I have and have had a sense that, there, that this is a very significant asset at Rice Lake Gold Mine in Manitoba that the company has. So I decided to revisit the story once again. And uh, uh, I, since I, I took a look at this and I said, well, this seems to me as I reviewed what the company is doing, they've had their operational issues. It's cost them more to produce than they expected. But clearly, I think the capital expenditures that they're undertaking now to hook up these high-grade uh, high grade sections and parallel veins that they've found, I think is going to pay off very well in terms of reducing costs. The company has been improving its operations year in and year out. It had a uh, 30 days of non-production last year that hurt it very badly because they had a problem with the mill. Uh, but I think this is a company that's on to, its, uh, on to better things uh, in the future at its current price. looks very good, and we'll have the CEO on to talk about uh, that as well. Uranium Energy Corp., the newest uh, energy, uh, let's say the newest uranium producer in the United States in recent decades, uh, selling just under $2. Uh, uh, Amir Adnani will be coming on with me to talk about that company. $170 million market cap is all it is. Uh, it is uh, is doing very well and also has great potential for expansion and growth uh, by several fold, I believe, from its projects in Texas. And I do believe that we're going to see much higher uranium prices in the not-too-distant future as the supplies of uranium from Russia wind down. Miranda Gold, uh, probably the lowest cap stock, one of the lowest cap stocks on my list. Well, not the lowest, but it's a $17 million market cap. What I really like about this company is its new move into Columbia, and it's got Agneagle Eagle as a strategic partner. Uh, we'll be talking to Ken Cunningham at some point over the next few weeks. Bravada Gold Corp. Uh, selling... Um, in uh, uh, in Nevada, it's actually operating in Nevada. It's got the Wind Mountain project that looks very good. Argonaut Gold is coming in, uh, spending seven and a half million dollars uh, to expand, explore, and develop this project. Uh, and I think they have a deal with. Um, with Argonaut, that Argonaut will buy out uh, Bravada, will buy out the uh, the project from Bravada, and on the basis of what the company already has, we're looking at uh, a, a valuation of six, seven times what its current share price is, and I believe that they will find significantly more gold and silver before they finish their exploration. Bravada Gold, BVA, BGA, BF at four and a half cents, and I'm, I must say that uh, I not only have recommended each of these stocks, but I own each of them in my own IRA, and that holds true for uh, for Bravada as well. Golden Arrow Resources is a company that came on just recently as a sponsor. I love this company. I think they're, they're going to be coming out with a 43101 pretty soon. This company has a minuscule $9 million market cap, selling at 22 cents today, 41.8 million shares. Uh, it is its project, uh, its silver project uh, in, um, in Argentina, uh, the Chinchillas project, I believe, is going to really wake some people up when they see the numbers when they come out. I, th I expect that there is a very significant silver deposit being developed uh, by Golden Arrow GRC or GARWF on the American or on the, in the U.S. markets. Uh, Paramount Gold and Silver a very significant company in the making here. Together between two projects, one in Mexico and one in the United States at the Sleeper Mine in Nevada, they have just under 10 million gold equivalent ounces, lots of silver, lots of gold. Uh, they have deep pockets, well-funded company, market cap of $313 million, but it's a very significant uh, company and uh, one with lots of growth, exploration growth potential. I would expect this will be a target of the majors in the not-too-distant future, selling at $2.12, PZG, on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, these are all companies that I feel very strongly have a good chance to do extremely well. We are getting an update, uh, an update finally, for gold in the gold markets. The juniors seem to be doing much better. 
Could this be a turning point for the junior gold shares? Well, we're going to talk to a guest we're going to have later in the day, and we'll get a, get an opinion on that for sure. And I will share my own thoughts about that at the closing moments of today's show. We do have to go now to a commercial break in just a couple of minutes. Well, actually, in about 30 seconds or so. Um, I, we're going to be talking to Chris Martinson today, uh, David Gerwitz of Charles Nanner and Associates, and Eric Redez of All-in-One Preparedness, uh, and my old, and I do mean my old friend, Al Corlin, uh, towards the end of today's show as well. And uh, But we are going to go to a commercial break now. And when we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about our guest today and some of the thoughts that I have about the markets. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, before I get to my guest, I just want to make a, a, some uh, remarks and comments about the markets and, uh, and the economy. There is a general recognition among many of the, uh, what I like to call the happy-talking Keynesian animal spirits proponents, that the economy isn't doing very well, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but that, in fact, um, it's not doing all that badly either, and all we need is more, more money printing, more deficit spending, more debt. And then more animal spirits. I mean, if nothing else, if we can just get people to be optimistic, everything will be fine. That is certainly the Keynesian notion, Keynes's idea of animal spirits. And Tom Keynes is, uh, on, on Bloomberg is always talking about how do we revive the animal spirits? Well, I would suggest you revive animal spirits by having sound balance sheets, by living within your means, uh, so that you're not always worried about going broke. The world is clearly in in big trouble, and I don't believe that the happy talkers from Washington and Wall Street, uh, the people that are really make up what is becoming an increasingly fascist or communist government and communist environment, uh, one that is in the antithesis of the free market government that our founding fathers wanted us to have. I think the people that propose this kind of an economy, this kind of a government, this kind of a world, have no idea really how bad things really are. Uh, in the flyover land of America. 
the East Coast and the West Coast do quite well because that is where the parasites live most abundantly. That is where the money is spread out first and foremost to the uh, to Wall Street and to Washington. And so the financial sectors on both coasts do very well, relatively well. And there are some other sectors for sure of our economy, certainly the um, the IT sector, the, the technology sector, uh, there are some things that are not parasitic in our world that are, that are good. I don't mean t- to make it sound uh, as if everything uh, is pathological. I think there's a lot of good things happening at the same time. Uh, and as Mark Skousen said a few weeks back, that in spite of the Keynesians, in spite of the communist uh, sort of policies that we've implemented, the fascist policies we've in- implemented, there still is a lot of good things happening and that we are growing our way out of the malinvestment in spite of it. Well, I hope Mark is right. I'm not so sure. Actually, um, I, I, you know, we can hope he's right. But if I, uh, as we talked to John Williams a few weeks ago, the the economy is much, much worse than the numbers tell us it is. Not only do we have to keep the animal spirits up so we can't let the people know really what's going on, right? So if we really look at the unemployment, as John Williams looks at it, or as we looked at it before Reagan uh, or, be, or in the 1930s for unemployment, we'd be looking at something like 18%. And if we looked at inflation like we looked at it during uh, before Ronald Reagan, we'd be looking at something closer to 10% than the 1.7%. Now, if you uh, if you factor in an inflation rate of 8 9%, 10%, into GDP, then we have never come out of the recession that was created after Lehman Brothers. We are still very much in, I believe, in a recession, in a contraction, in the real living standards. And, of course, if they change the CPI, not to reflect a constant basket of goods and services, but if they change that basket of services so that you eat hamburger or dog food eventually, uh, when steak gets too expensive, then, of course, you can... Play with the numbers, and that's what they're doing. David Stockman, in his book, The Great Deformation, I think, is really confirming very much of, of what John Williams is saying. And I think also the consumer sentiment is is really confirming John Williams as well. So we have um, a global financial system that now is obviously coming unglued. We're seeing it in Cyprus. We're seeing it in Europe. We're not seeing it in the United States because of the, uh, well, we're not marked to marketing. Uh, we're not marked marking to market the balance sheets of banks anymore so we can pretend and we can extend uh, this uh, problem longer and down the road for sure. Um, uh, but it's not going to fix things really. If if our balance sheets in our, our country is going broke, uh, just with smoke and mirrors, you can't fix it. That may be uh, keeping the animal spirits up a little longer, but it's not going to fix anything longer term. The Cyprus situation, can it happen here? Well, Ellen Brown noted last week it most certainly could happen here. Uh, in fact, uh, James Sinclair sent out a, a missive a little while ago t- showing all the signatures uh, around the world. Virtually everybody has signed on to the bail-in provision. Now, it may be there's, maybe it's not possible uh, legally to do it in the United States, uh, but, um, but who pays attention to laws? I mean, we've seen law after law the Constitution is not paid any attention to anymore. So when you uh, live in a lawless society, who pays attention to laws? And certainly the government is the last one uh, to, to pay attention to laws uh, if it applies to what uh, the people in government want to do uh, with the rest of our lives. So this is the direction of things. Now, I think today's main guest, uh, Chris Martinson, is coming on in just a, a couple of minutes here as soon as we go to break. And he's talking about a world that cannot continue its exponential growth, that there are just simply natural constraints uh, against resource harvesting, that we are reaching those limits and that as we reach those limits, we're going to be increasingly uh, in difficult times. And Chris believes that uh, the system, in order to hold it together now, has to grow more and more, faster and faster. We have to keep on with exponential growth. Population is growing exponentially. The demands are growing exponentially. And they're trying to do it with printing press money, and the system is breaking down. Chris Martinson will talk about how we can uh, live a better, more fulfilling life uh, when he comes uh, to us, I should mention he's very much in sync with Dmitri Orlov's views as well uh, at, in, in in these lines. And I would say Alan 
uh, Ellen Brown as well. Uh, in the second hour of today's show, Eric Redez is going to be with me to talk. Uh, he's from All in One Preparedness. Uh, give us some ideas of what we should have in place in case things do go wrong, uh, national emergency, natural uh, emergencies, as well as political uh, discord and and uh, and problems along those lines. And we're going to be talking to David Gerwitz of Charles Nenner and, and Company, and this uh, more to do with the markets now, where we might be looking to make some money and. And where, what markets we should stay out of and what markets we should go into. Uh, Charles Nanner is an excellent trader, a great trader in the past with Goldman Sachs. I think it's going to be very much worth listening to. And then finally at 4.30, I'm going to talk to Al Corlin. He's going to talk, uh, we're going to talk about uh, this whole thing about bail-ins. Uh, and we're going to ask Al about some of the things he's doing on his excellent radio show as well, the Corlin Economics Report. Well, we do have to go to break now. When we come back, though, uh, well, I'll be with Chris Martinson. Go, don't go away. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico. Backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet, an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Chris Martinson. He is an economic researcher and futurist who speaks to audiences around the world on The Crash Course. That's the name of an excellent book that he's written. Uh, he runs uh, the popular peakprosperity.com website uh, on the global economy. And Chris uh, began his career as a scientist, earning his Ph.D. in pathology from Duke University and then an MBA from Cornell. He became vice president of a large Fortune 300 company uh, and believed that he had achieved the American dream, living with his family in a large waterfront home in Connecticut. Uh, but he was jolted out of his complacency by the bear market in 2001 and used his background in finance uh, and science to investigate the workings of our monetary si- uh, system. Chris discovered and changed his life for the better, uh, and he became, began sharing his experience with thousands of other people over the past number of years, how they could do the same thing. So we're really welcome, uh, want to welcome you again, Chris, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be back so soon. Well, it's, uh, it's required to have you back so soon because we didn't get to the good stuff of uh, your book and the, the positive topic of your book and that, that people can actually do something to help themselves uh, in, uh, as we face some very difficult times ahead of us. You know, we talked two weeks ago about how you came to realize that the world is on an unsustainable course and there is, uh, that there is going to be severe consequences as a result. Um, realizing that fact, you moved to a smaller hometown a uh, smaller community, uh, began to live a richer life, according to what you told me last week. What I want to do this week, then, is, uh, is what we failed to accomplish in my discussion a couple of weeks ago, and that is to learn more about 
the changes you made and why they are beneficial to you uh, and to your and to your life. Because it certainly seems, uh, you know, having a waterfront property uh, in Connecticut and, and a, a very nice income with a big, uh, you know, with a family and all that, that is the American dream, it seems. But before we get to, you know, to you, you talking about some of the changes you've made, um, for the sake of those who may not have heard us the first time, could you just go over a little bit the your general thesis and why we are living on an unsustainable uh, course, and also perhaps talk about what you call your lens. That's the three the three E's that are com- that comprise the lens of the world the world as you see it now. Um, the economy, energy, and the environment. If you could go over just the general thesis and then talk a little bit about how those three E's play into your into your viewpoint. I'd love to. So the three E framework is is uh, my attempt to say it's time for us to look at the economy, energy, and the environment all in, at one time because the days of being able to just focus on the economy, uh, pull some monetary levers, and just trust that energy would be there and the environment would be able to handle all of our, all of our activities is no longer a, a useful framework. And the framework that I offer is to say, well, if whatever we do in energy now is going to have impact on the environment. Whatever we're doing in the environment has an impact on our economic system, and we have to look at all three together. And, and the summary of it really boils down to this, Jay, which is that our economy is built in a way which requires it to grow. If it's growing, it's fine. And by grow, I mean, you know, 3% per year real growth would be lovely, you know, 6% nominal growth in GDP. That's what we're targeting. That's what we – all of our official actions at the fiscal and monetary levels are just designed to get the economy growing – that's great, except when we back up a step and we ask this question, can something grow forever in a finite space? The answer is no. And our economy, if we abstract that and ask, well, what is an economy? Well, that's people consuming stuff. And that stuff comes from the real world. All those goods come out of the earth in some way, shape, or form. And so when we wander over to the earth, and I'm calling that the environment in this, in this framework, and we ask, well, what's going on over there? we discover all kinds of fascinating information like that the average ore grades of non-renewable natural resources, critical mineral resources, things like copper, gold, silver, tin, you name it, the ore grades of those have been just absolutely plummeting over time. And that makes sense, right? We're humans, so what we do is we go out and we high grade, we, we, get, we find a, an outcropping of gold flakes, and that's great. And so we go after that quartz seam and we pull that out, and when that's gone, we dig a little deeper, and we go after stuff that's a little bit more dilute. And this brings us over to the energy side of the story, Jay, because Mm -hmm. as we're chasing ever more distant, dilute, deeper minerals, the cost to extract those goes up, up, up. And uh, and that's because the energy involved to get those things out is much higher when you're, you know, here's an example. Once upon a time, ore grades for copper were around 10%, and that means you had to take 10 pounds of ore out, process it to get your one pound of copper. And today's ore grades average around 0.2% for copper, and that means you have to pull out 500 pounds, bring mm-hmm. it up out of this big hole, crush it, smelt it, refine it, uh, 500 pounds of ore to get your same one pound of copper. And the difference in energy cost from processing 10 pounds versus 500 pounds, well, it's an exponential increase right. in the amount of energy required. So all of a sudden we have the story that says, wait, we have an economy that must grow in order to be happy, and it's connected to an energy system for oil in particular, all oil is expensive now. New oil, 70, 80 bucks. If we look at it on a dollar basis, but what that's really telling us is it takes more energy inputs to get energy back out of our new oil finds because they're deeper, more distant, all that. And so we have an energy system that really can't grow the way we want it to anymore. And we have an environment, both from the extraction process, pulling stuff out of it is giving us clear warning signs, and also from the waste streams we're putting back into it. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've seen the pictures from China. Mm. There's, there's obvious limits that you hit that are, that are ugly. Um, right. So we're, we're, there are no new horizons. There's no extra world hidden on the far side of the sun that we haven't found. There's, there's no new continent that hasn't already been picked over once. So here we are at this really amazing, unique period in human history when we finally sort of filled out the surface of the planet. We've mapped it. We've scoured it. We've mined it. And yes, there are still resources there, but this is not your granddaddy's world. Uh, they're, they're just harder to come by. And the tension that's developing right now is that we have an economic and financial system and all its associated institutions, political and, and cultural, that just want growth. And everything the Fed is doing and the Treasury is doing is just designed to give us more and more growth. 
But somebody has to step back and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, eventually, growth is over. What happens then? And my thesis comes to the conclusion that our money system breaks without growth. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very important idea. It has extraordinary implications. I may be right. I may be wrong. But I think people should at least consider the implications of that, if only to reject it. But it's a conversation we need to have. Absolutely. And while you talk about growth, Chris, uh, you didn't talk about the word exponential. And as we look in your book, you have a number of charts, graphs, I should say, that show, you know, this isn't just a linear growth that we've had in terms of population, in terms of income. Uh, consumption, you mentioned 10% copper, now 0.2. You know, I know in following the copper uh, industry that when they find a, a significant drill hole that's 1%, they're, you know, they're ecstatic. So you're right, and the, uh, the same thing holds true in gold. So we have diminishing resources uh, at the same time that we have this exponential growth in demand for those resources. And now with the Eastern world, China, and uh, the BRIC countries coming on, expecting and wanting to have the same kind of lifestyle that the West is enjoyed for so long. Uh, this thing looks it definitely looks unsustainable. But you know, Chris, one of the things a lot of people say is yes, but good old American ingenuity. We've heard it said, you know, recently. My good friend Rick Rule pointed out that in spite of the politicians, uh, the uh, you know the scientific community, the uh, technology that we've developed for oil fracking, for for ga- oil and gas fracking, uh, is making a difference. So he says, you know, you know, high gas prices drove uh, innovation, and we have now this oil and gas fracking. So one of the questions, and you, you have a chapter in your book, why technologies can't solve the problem. Explain explain that, if you could, please. I mean, I think I, I get it because I see this exponential growth in demand, finite resources, uh, costing more and more to get it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, talk to us why technologies can't solve this problem. Jay, technology can do a lot for us. And I think it's important to point out, though, that one of the things that maybe a blind spot in our discussions about uh, technology in our culture is that uh, technology creates as many difficulties as it as it solves often. And so one of the reasons I'm not convinced that technology is going to fully come through and save us is that what we have what we really need here is we need to understand what the true limits are of the planet that we're living on. And so here's a simple thought experiment. Imagine we we discovered a magic technology that could give us unlimited energy, it's zero point energy, it's you know, some fantastic thing, it's fusion. If we just ran this thought experiment and said, oh, okay, so what if the world this, got this free energy and the whole world got it and the whole world could come up to middle class standards and we're just increasing our, our, our production of energy by 3% per year as, as we grow along, it sounds like it would solve everything, right? Well, it turns out that just the waste heat generated from energy production, no matter what source it's coming from, whether it's this new fantastical technology uh, that we're talking about or, or coal, doesn't matter, waste heat's generated. At 3% growth, that waste heat within 400 years would raise the surface of the planet just from the heat that, that it produces and can't be radiated into space fast enough, would raise the surface of our planet to 100 degrees Celsius, uh, and you know water would be boiling in all the oceans. So clearly we'd have to stop our growth in, in energy production somewhere well before that point in time just because of, of the waste heat issue. And, and so, you know, we look at what technology has managed to do. It's given us these, we've, we're going after the source rocks and shale right now and, and other tight formations uh, like limestone, and, and we're able to get at the source formations, and that unlocks a huge potential, and it's given us a lot of energy, but it's not an infinite amount of energy. The, the, what truly unlocked those plays, I wish I could tell you it was magnificent new technology, but I, all my friends in the oil business say, oh, no, no, we've had fracking for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And we've had horizontal drilling for, for about that long as well. What unlocked those plays was high oil prices, mm-hmm. and that's magnificent, but we have to look at the dynamic of those reservoirs. They, they deplete extraordinarily rapidly on a per-well basis. We have to drill more and more wells just to maintain an, a, an existing amount of production, and then once we stop those drilling efforts because... Uh, you know, we ran out of territory to drill or, you know, oil prices went below a certain level, we discover that the production from those areas falls off very, very rapidly. So this is a great find. It's magnificent. But we should have this story running firmly in our minds, which is we don't have 100 years of natural gas. You can just forget about that idea at this moment, even with all the shale plays. We have, mm, I'm going to guess somewhere around 50 years, but if we really start using it for transportation, that is, we, we really grow our, our consumption of the gas, which is probably going to happen. 
uh, we might have 20, 30, 40 years. And that's mm-hmm. magnificent. But what we really need to be asking is what any company would ask, which is, okay, we have some resource here, uh, and where are we going with that? And we need a plan in this country that would say something like, when that gas runs out, and it will, where do we want to be? What should our infrastructure look like? You know, do we, are we going to be running off electricity? Do we need a smart grid? Do we have to reorganize any of our living arrangements with suburbs versus cities? Where do we want to grow our food? There's a lot of questions we should be answering and asking, and we're not at this point. We're using technology as a way to say, oh, look, we started to run out of oil and gas. Prices went up. We unlocked this next find. We're just going to be able to do that forever. And the truth is that we won't. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, there's no new formation. We've known about those shale plays. Like the Bakken has actually been drilled since the 50s. Mm-hmm. We've known about that for a very, very long time. Once that's tapped out, I, I worry that people will say, well, we'll just find some other place to drill. Mm-hmm. And the answer is you talk to people in the geo- geological fields around oil, they say, no, no, we know all the sedimentary basins. They all have been mapped for decades. There's, once we've drilled through those, there's no next horizon that we know to go to. So we really, we, we've got, I think, a, a reprieve is how I look at, at the shale plays. They will not, under any circumstances, allow the U.S. to become oil independent. Mm-hmm. We might become energy independent if we add all the sources of energy together and say they're equivalent, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Oil is a magic substance. You can't you know, replace it with coal at this point in time. It, it's not swappable with, with electrons from, from the sun. Uh, it, you know, we, need, we need liquid fuels to run our current uh, way of life, our living arrangement. And that's when I look into that, I say, hmm, this looks like you know, this form of energy is going to become increasingly expensive. That's going to have extraordinary implications, both on the challenge and opportunity side. But I, I, I want to be very clear, technology can do some stuff for us, but it can't create energy. All yeah. it can do is help us get at it faster, better, cheaper, use it more efficiently, but it can't create energy. And that's the big gaping question mark in this story when we say once these fossil resources run out, what is that next energy source? And people say, uh, alternative energy, right? Well, we'll use the wind. We'll use mm-hmm. sun, sun. But this will be, here's the challenge in that, Jay. Those are less concentrated, less awesome forms of energy. Mm-hmm. Oil is the, it's the most concentrated. It's magic substance. And society has always done energy transitions. Yeah, we went from uh, wood to coal and from coal to oil. But when we were going across those transitions, we were going from a worse to a better, from a more dilute to Mm -hmm. a more concentrated source of energy. Mm -hmm. And society has never, never yet gone through a transition where we went from a better to a less concentrated, more diffuse energy source. Mm. Maybe it can be done, but I'm going to bet you it can't be done under the, under the usual circumstances and arrangements that, that as we, we would expect them to. All right. So, as I understand it, Chris, you've got this, the, these natural constraints, you know, the finite world that we live in, and this exponential demand for the use of those uh, resources, uh, and that is going to play out, as I understand your thesis, through uh, through the banking system, through the financial world, because in fact, uh, what we have to have is uh, continued growth, more and more growth, and yet it's impossible because of these finite resources. Is that right? It's right, Jay, and the, and the risk in this is that whenever I do engage an actual living, breathing economist, um, you know, classical, neoclassical, supply side, whatever, who, mm-hmm. all, the, all the boys and girls who are currently in power who have economics degrees, when I try and engage in this conversation, they kind of tilt their head sideways and, and they look like a dog listening to white noise. They, they can't engage with the idea that the world has limits. They, they short-circuit that idea and say, oh, no, 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 market forces will, will just respond. And yeah. And it's a real cop-out because what they're failing to do is engage in there's hard, quantifiable facts. We just All we have to do is look at the numbers and ask some pretty basic questions, common-sense questions. And their failure to engage in that is a huge blind spot, and it creates extraordinary risk because by default, what they're saying is, no, 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 the, the markets will work all that out. So what we have to do is just make sure that the money supply and credit systems keep growing. Because that's what current classical economists do. They keep the money supply and credit systems growing. And they're going to trust everything else works out. And for me, the risk in that is what, money is a claim on stuff, right? Money has no value to me unless I can spend it on mm-hmm. something. And credit or debt is a claim on money. Mm-hmm. So both of those things, are debt and credit, are just claims on stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And as the claims are increasing and increasing and increasing by exponential amounts, the real stuff is now nosing over and and soon may even go into retreat, the amount of real stuff. So that's the classic definition. What do you get when you're constantly increasing your money supply, but your economy is, is no longer growing? Well, that's where you have real risks to the value of that currency, the values to the risk of, of the risk is to the value of fiat money in general. And in this story, you know, we haven't been working on a free-floating exchange rate debt-backed money system forever. Mm-hmm. It's actually been in operation since August 15th, 1971. Absolutely. When slammed the gold window. And so we're about 42 years into this particular experiment. Mm-hmm. And that's about how long, classically, historically, fiat money systems that are based on interest have managed to go and before they get into real trouble. And so I think we're at the early stages of that vast disconnect between these poor, misguided, but, but well-meaning economists at the Fed and elsewhere just jamming money into the system, uh, even as the rest of the system is failing to respond for reasons that I think are explained by $100 a barrel oil and the fact that resources are getting increasingly expensive. Well, I think it's very interesting that you mentioned 1971, August 15th. I remember it well. But as I look at some of the charts uh, on in your book, uh, the graphs, that is sort of an, it seems to me, sort of an inflection point when we started having more and more fast and faster growth in a lot of uh, a lot of the the things that you show in your book, uh, and and so this may be very artificial. Then is what you're saying is this artificial stimulus that has come through the monetary system. And as I understand it, what you're saying is that we're now starting to see the breakdown of that monetary system. Uh, perhaps what we're seeing in in Europe and in the United States, 2008, 2009, Cyprus uh, now, of course. And is that do you see this playing out then through a, a collapse in the monetary system, which then has repercussions? We had Dmitry Orloff on this show last week, and he's talked about the five stages of collapse. He believes we're very much in that first of those five stages now. So is, do you think this is something that's going to be forced on, on people to downsize, doing what you did voluntarily? Uh, and is this the way you see it playing out? And that's one question. The next one is, as I listen to you, I can't help but think we're going to be paying a lot more dollars for the stuff we need to have to live on. Yeah, I'll start with that second one first. It, that only stands to reason because we're just creating more and more and more dollars all the time and the amount of stuff is, mm-hmm. is increasing at a much slower rate. In the last 10 years, I think if we average it all out, we've probably had in the vicinity of maybe 1% economic growth, uh, which includes the downturn of 2009 and, and uh, all the 3% you know zones we had in there. But it averages out to about 1%. That's just stall rate. And against that, we've had growth in credit that's been running at about 8 or 9%, but globally, it's been running at almost 11% over that same time frame. And so we are we're just we're just increasing our claims and we're not increasing the underlying economy so that is absolutely a recipe for more fiat money for the same amount of stuff in the future uh, absolutely but the way i see this playing out right now is we are absolutely witnessing what i would say what my theory would say is just what happens when there's uh there the resources the world just can't respond in the way it used to and so all the high priests and priestesses are are, are mumbling their magic incantations at the fed and at the ecb and and the bank of england Bank of Japan. They've been, I, I, anybody, if you took me 10 years ago or any economist 10 years ago and said, what would happen to the world economy if central banks collectively pumped about $15 trillion into it? What would happen? And they'd say, oh, well, you'd just have this explosion. I mean, we'd probably mm. be running at you know nominal rates of growth higher than 10%. I mean, yeah. just, and it's not happening. So to me, this is just a sign of saying, look, we have plenty of years of experience now saying we've pumped money in like crazy and it's not working. And the classical explanation is, well, there's still a lot of debt overhang and, and we're working through some deflationary aspects. Mm-hmm. That's true and oil's over 100 bucks, and that's telling us something. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, well, so we have this enormous stimulus, monetary stimulus. It isn't growing. And again, I have to think that it, it's at least in part related to you know the, the constraints that you're talking about, the natural constraints. But Chris, uh, talk to us a little bit about the changes you've made. Explain your life, your lifestyle now as a, compared to when you lived on that waterfront property in Connecticut, and why is it better? That's one question. And the second question is, uh, why would it be better for people to start thinking along those lines now rather than 
than being forced to think along those lines in the future. Well, if, if my thinking is correct, we are going to be experiencing a future with less in it. And there's a couple of ways to get to a future of less. One is you just sort of wait until it's forced on you. I consider that's probably a very unpleasant experience, very disruptive, possibly very damaging. So to anybody who, who was coasting along in a middle-class lifestyle and then lost their job and was unable to find a job with equivalent pay, they've already experienced that. I think that's, that's a very painful situation. Mm-hmm. And so the other way that you get to a life of living with less is you do it on your own terms. These changes take time. So the kinds of changes I'm talking about, Jay, all summarize into this one word. I want to be more resilient. It's equivalent to the investing concept of diversifying. Mm-hmm. And so I now have diversified energy in my house, meaning I have solar hot water panels. I've got a wood stove. I have an oil furnace in the basement. Uh, I've got better insulation in windows, so I need less energy. And these investments that I made uh, have very quantifiable double and sometimes triple digit returns mm-hmm. uh, baked into them, which are guaranteed unless energy goes to zero dollars. That's my only risk here. Mm-hmm. If energy ever becomes free, these will be bad <laughs> investments. But otherwise, they're guaranteed. And so where can I find guaranteed uh, returns like that from Wall Street, the answer is nowhere at mm-hmm. this point. And so the first piece of advice we have for people is is figure out ways that you can redefine investment, invest in yourself. And this could be like improving your soil in case you'd want to garden. If you, uh, that's uh, something I choose to do, you could invest in some of the energy infrastructure plays. Uh, but basically, the, the, the nub of these investments should be, look, food and fuel and the basics have been going up in price for quite a long time, over a decade. We think that trend is going to continue. So these investments should be around the idea of ex- giving you the opportunity to have less of your money go towards those things in the future. Mm-hmm. The classic capital investment. We advise people to get out of any high interest debt, that's auto loans, uh, uh, that would be credit card, uh, that would be any sort of home equity line of credit that where, where it's a, a reasonably high rate of interest. These sorts of things just don't make sense when you can't get a decent rate of return out of the market, then you might as well, if you have money, uh, get out of the, the place where you're, or you know, you know you're hemorrhaging, you know, four, five, six, seven, or even 10%. Uh, rates of interest. Get rid of that stuff because that's a real killer in a, in a downturn if you lose your income source mm-hmm. or more worryingly to me is because I think this applies to more people, your income stays kind of flat mm-hmm. uh, because you know median real incomes aren't going up and then all of your non-discretionary costs are going up underneath you. That's your food, that's your mm-hmm. fuel, that's medical, the basics of life are all rising in so your discretionary income just gets eroded. So under that circumstance, get out of debt. Thirdly, everybody has to have at least some exposure to gold. I, you know, 10% is the minimum, but honestly, I think 20% of liquid net worth should be the minimum. Uh, I'm much higher than that personally, have been for a while. And the reason for that is that I think there's a, a really high chance over the next 5-10 years that we get into a, a world-class currency crisis, mm-hmm. and gold is the only monetary asset I'm aware of that's not simultaneously somebody else's liability. And the whole banking system is just one giant daisy chain of liabilities at this point. I, I think it either stands or falls, and the chance of it falling, it's not 100%, but it's high enough that you should have an insurance policy against uh, that happening should that come to pass. And uh, then the final piece is if you if you do have money left over after all those improvements and buying some gold and everything, then have it managed really carefully and safely, thinking that this next period of time is, I think, uh, I'm going to quote Richard Russell, the, 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 the primary purpose of any bear market is to take the most money from the most people. Mm-hmm. And in this case, uh, I advocate safety, return of principle rather than return on is, is really, uh, I think, going to be a cornerstone of investing for a little while as we wait and watch to see, will deflation win this battle or will inflation win this battle? Mm-hmm. And if it, if we fall off this knife edge we're walking, either direction, there's you know very different sets of advice for, for how to how to escape through those. But in my world, I, I see uh, gold performing well under, under either of those circumstances because deflation will, will obviously tear down institutions, financial systems, the banking system itself may suffer shocks that prove fatal in some regions. Uh, gold does extraordinarily well under those circumstances. And under inflationary times, it probably will do about as well as anything else would be one of my guesses. So your gold, your advice to own gold is to own the bullion, I suppose. And what about silver? Uh, silver, too. Silver, to me, is a, a very different substance. I love it to death. It, on the short term, I'm not as clear on it. On the long term, I'm absolutely clear on it. It's an industrial metal. It's it's fantastic. It, uh, on the periodic table of elements, it is the most reflective. It is the most conductive. It's the only one on there with these outrageously awesome uh, medical benefits uh, mm-hmm. relating to uh, its antibacterial and, and viral uh, characteristics. It's it's just got a, a host of uses, and it's depleting very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look at the 
average ore grade of, of pure silver miners it's halved in the last uh, 15 years, and it's just that trend is continuing down. Mm-hmm. And someday we actually can plot when we run out of that stuff uh, of all known reserves of silver just basically run out. And mm-hmm. and at that point in time, uh, we will discover that silver on the surface of the planet is actually rarer than gold because mm-hmm. it's gotten consumed and lost at, mm-hmm. at the molecular level. So uh, this is a longer term hold for me, but I absolutely love it to death because it's it's a non-substitutable element. And just one example for every watt of solar panels that's put out there, 0.1 grams of silver is involved in that. And wow. they're trying to figure out how to reduce it, but, but frankly, there's no, uh, they can reduce the amount of silver they use by being more clever in their soldering techniques, but there's no, they can't use tin, they can't use a, a lead base. It just doesn't work nearly as well. So if you just calculate, you know, where the world thinks it wants to be with, with respect to solar PV production mm-hmm. by 2030, you find out that basically half of all the silver that's going to be mined between here and there will be consumed in that process. Uh, so, so that's an extraordinary wow. statement right there. It's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's an un- it will be an unprecedented demand on a diminishing uh, material that's becoming ever more expensive to get out of the ground. And it's uh, uh, something that I think is just a, a fabulous play. But my concern over the near term is that I think the world is heading into a little bit of another downturn here, mm-hmm. and the industrial demand for silver will probably drop as a consequence of that, and so there will be a dynamic there to watch out for. So silver, uh, though, also has the monetary attributes uh, to, an, to a great extent as well, in addition to the industrial ones, which make it perhaps a good barter, uh, a good barter asset to hold as well in times oh, of stress. Absolutely. I, I certainly hold a, a whole uh, variety of uh, junk silver and one-ounce rounds, specifically with the idea that um, if, if ever it comes back to being remonetized, uh, these will be tradable, circulable units. Uh, Arizona already is looking at putting gold and silver uh, on the docket as a, as a certified you know, as money in their state. Utah's considering that. New Hampshire's considered that. It's happening. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, it, and it makes just a world of sense for a state to have a, a dual parallel circulating currency that's based on sound money. That's an idea that's gaining traction, and it, and it obviously in today's environment does make sense. So if that happens, uh, I, I now have to consider uh, the, monet- the remonetization of silver will be just a, a total game changer for silver. Yeah. Oh, and uh, uh, Chris, what about the miners? Do you invest in miners at all? Are you? I mean, clearly the most the safest way is to own the metal itself. I mean, that the risk is so much greater when you own the miners. And I, and I'm hearing what your view is now in the short term in the economy. Might be a rough time yet still for a while for the miners, or or how do you see it? Well, they've, they've certainly been suffering greatly, and and you know by the charts, I they kind of look like the bottoming here. But if the mm-hmm. world World recessionary outcome is, happens. Uh, the miners will will take it uh, in the shorts, just like everybody else, and mm-hmm. just from their equity uh, characteristics and market risk. Um, and I have not been. A, I used to be a heavy investor in the miners. Uh, they lost me for a while because of all the dilutive practices mm-hmm. that the the management was doing, and cash flow from operations were just mysteriously not keeping up with the base price of metals. And and so I was a little confused there for a while. I think they've cleaned up their act as an industry. I'm, I'm seeing more uh, what I consider fiduciary responsibility, where they're not diluting shareholders. Cash flow from operations is starting to pick up. Uh, so it, it looks favorable um, in, in that regard, but my, my, I'm steering very much uh, towards the majors at this point and mid-majors as, as where I would begin to dip my own toe back into, those, uh, into that market. Um, yeah. Well, so indeed... Yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, Chris, that we, we certainly my focus as well is on the uh, producers, those guys that are generating cash flows, uh, and they are then able to go out and, and acquire a lot of the other guys that can't stay alive uh, in a in a very difficult market to raise capital, put the next drill hole down. So, there's I think the, it's the best of times for the for the producers. But uh, I just wanted to hear your take on that. We I don't have an awful lot more time, and there's a couple more things I want to ask you about as well. Uh, Concerning this inflation-deflation issue, you brought it up. Longer term, I have to think you're an inflationist. But what, if I understand what you're saying, short term, we could see uh, another another decline. And in fact, I think recently you came out suggesting that the uh, stock market was looking a little long in the tooth, and we might see uh, another decline. Is that your view right now? It still is my view, and the reason is that there's a, a bunch of base information and data that I, I just don't like, and it pertains to a global economic slowdown. We already know that Japan's in recession. We know that Europe's in recession. Even Germany is now nosed over into that territory. 
and uh, there's some pretty aggressive slowdowns happening uh, across the rest of Asia. So you kind of have U.S. as the lone holdout, but that's not a surprise to me because, you know, when you're deficit spending 8% of GDP plus the Fed is dumping another 3 or 4% of GDP into the markets in, in the form of fresh cash, it, it's, you know, it's, you're going to be at least nominally in the positive, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's true, but I'm still, I think the chance of a recession is very high. The market is priced to perfection at this point in time. We have stocks at all-time highs, but more worryingly to me, we have um, bonds at all-time highs mm-hmm. on, by any basis. So, you know, <laughs> the high-yield junk bond index yielding 5.5% are yeah. crazy. Yeah. So we have an extraordinary asset bubble there. All the world's central banks now have balance sheets that are just bloated with ultra-expensive assets. And if we start to get into this world recessionary slowdown, I think those assets are, are clearly at, at risk. And if the capital starts to dry up for uh, bond refundings or, if, you know, listen, we're at all-time record highs for bond prices. That, that's a bad environment to me to want to really be going long in the, in the equities that, that sit beneath those things mm-hmm. uh, in the old value chain. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned here. I think this would be a great time to be very cautious. I'm, not, I'm certainly not uh, thinking this is a time to, to jump into equities uh, full on, and I think mm-hmm. there's a big risk of some downside here. Mm-hmm. So build some cash and, and, and be ready perhaps uh, for some better buying opportunities in the future. Absolutely. Um, all right. Now, you, you mentioned uh, Chapter 26 in your book, The Good News. We already have everything we need. Explain that. Well, we don't need any new understanding. We don't need new technologies to come along. We just have to get the political will or, or the cultural narrative installed that says we start have to start doing things differently. And a quick example around this would be the natural gas. So you have all these producers uh, who've overproduced classically, and they've they've now said, well, what we'd like to do is to be able to export this, mm-hmm. and that makes perfect economic sense if we're just focused over on that one E. That's great. You know, we can we can compress it, we can liquefy it, we can send it overseas and make money. Mm-hmm. Should we do that? But from an environmental standpoint, that doesn't make any sense, and from an energy standpoint, that's a complete loser. Twenty five percent of the work that's embodied in that gas when you pull it out of the ground gets consumed in the liquefaction process. Mm. It's very energy intensive. And that 25% of that work that you use to liquefy it can't be used for anything else. It's Mm. gone. Mm. And so my suggestion would be if we had a different story that said, wait a minute, it's not our, our job isn't to get it out of the ground as fast as possible so that future generations don't have any, so that we can sell it for the highest price. Our job is that's a resource. We should use that. What should we use it for? And if we had a this national discussion that said, we think the best use for it is to liquefy it and send it overseas, great. But instead, we might get some other voices in there that would say, let's use that natural gas to build stuff. Let's, let's reinvigorate our, our domestic industries. Let's, let's produce uh, the next layer of infrastructure. You know, we have a decaying national infrastructure that's frankly embarrassing in some parts. And, and it wouldn't it be great to use the energy and natural gas to rebuild that. And so... Uh, we have every technology we need right now and all the understanding we need right now to start living a much more resilient life to rebuild our economy in a way that is truly sustainable. It's based on savings and investment and smart decisions, not consumption and debt. Um, and, and so that's the good news. The, yeah. the, the bad news is there seems to be um, a status quo machine that is very well funded that has no interest in doing things differently. And... Uh, that's sort of the, the fight, as it were, at this point in time. But guess what? We, we have everything we need to do things differently. We just have to decide that's what we're going to do. Well, and of course, uh, it's, uh, it's incumbent on each of us to do the best we can for ourselves and our families. Uh, we, it has to start probably from the bottom up. It doesn't seem, as you say, the status quo is, is very much in place. Uh, status quo, by definition, doesn't want to change. It wants to keep the advantages they have. And we certainly see that, and we're seeing a redistribution of wealth from the people that produce it, uh, I believe, into the, uh, the the financial system, and of course, I don't know. You know, the parasitic behavior can only go on so long, uh, Chris. And I think that your book, The Crash Course, really lays out uh, in a really big picture way why we have difficulties and why we need to start thinking about things for our own good. Um, you know, I think we have to start individually, right? And then hopefully, it it catches on and moves up to a larger on a larger scale. We absolutely have to be the change we wish to see. There's no other way. And I can't be out there agitating to have a resilient country if I'm not personally in my household resilient. It just doesn't make sense. 
And so I just, you know, to anybody listening, I, 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 after making all these changes, I am healthier. So I made a lot of health changes in my life. Mm-hmm. I am wealthier. I sleep very well at night, knowing that, that my assets are secure. And I am highly insulated to any shocks that might come along, be they around food, fuel. I've got a really deep community, an aspect we haven't talked about yet, but yeah. I really broadened my, my relationships with my neighbors and, and all the people in my community. And uh, after all of those changes, I did many of those because I was trying to avoid a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. And now that I've got here, I would run towards it as a much higher quality of life and a better way to live. And and frankly, closer to how I think we're supposed to live and something my grandfather and all his relations before him would probably recognize and just say, yes, of course, right. that's how we're supposed to live. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's very good. It's, the book is The Crash Course, and you can pick it up if you go to peakprosperity.com, I guess, Chris. I probably can buy it in the bookstores as well. It's it's a wonderful read. Uh, it's It's an easy read, and I think it just lays things out very, very well. I want to thank you very much. Again, Chris, for being with us, and uh, tell us of the, the small town you live in. It's a, it's a, how large a population is it? Well, in our town, there's about 400 households, about 2,000 people. But this is New England, so you have many communities of that same size, sort of all just rubbing shoulders with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's relatively sparsely populated. We have five colleges about 15 minutes from here, so mm-hmm. we've got a, that stable, exciting sort of university base. But I chose a place that's a nice mix of rural and and urban, if mm-hmm. you will. So we've got mm-hmm. small cities and we've got farms, and it's just the right balance for me and my family. Very good. Well, thank you very much. We're out of time. Really good to have you again, Chris. Thank you so much for coming with us. Uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much. Jay, pleasure's in mine. Thank you. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with Dr. Suzanne Zettner. She is the president of All-in-One Preparedness. This is a company that provides uh, the kinds of things that Chris Martinson is talking about you should have to take care of your family in case of of emergencies and um, in the future. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Zettner. This program is brought to you by Sandgold at www.sandgold.ca. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top 10 gold mining region. Sandgold continues to show tremendous exploration success. With two mines already in production, the company is now revealing a new gold mining trend. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www. Dot sandgold.ca.